if they were about. And uh, they have a number of topics, and so we'll look at several of those. Let's go ahead and deal with 8 to 11 together. Can anybody read those? The unmarried widows, I see the dissident to remain single as I am. So he has instructions for the unmarried and widows. He's given general observations, and so now he's applying those observations of to specific groups. I believe that it's best to understand unmarried here as the widowers and widows. He, biblical Greek does not have a specific word for widower, and Paul addresses the single unmarried later in the chapter. Um, there's, there's paired groups all through this. In fact, you just see it constantly, the paired groups. And so I suspect that's what it is. You don't have to believe that. I don't really care. But I suspect that he's saying for the widows and widowers, it's good for them to remain even as I. He keeps using this, it's good business. In verse 1, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Verse 8, it's good for them to remain even as I. And then in 26, it is good in view of the present distress. I think that was what they kept saying. So I think they had said it's good for them to remain even as he is. And he says, but if they don't have self-control, let them marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay, if there's some good in widows and widowers remaining single, absolutely. There's some good in that. But is that to be an absolute rule? By no means. It's good also to marry much better than to burn with lust and desire, to have this morbid battle to repress your desires for companionship or otherwise. And uh, so, you know, yes, is it good to remain single for a widow or widower? Yes. But it's not good for some people to remain single. Uh, and so that's, I think, the point he's making. Then he moves in verse 10, but to the married. So you have the widows. Now you've got the married. I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. Now that's caused some problems sometimes. What does he mean, not I, but the Lord? Well, I think he means these instructions were already given by Jesus. Matthew 19 and Mark 10 and so forth already said what God joined together, let not man put asunder. So he's really just repeating Jesus' instructions here. What are the instructions? The wife should not leave her husband. The husband should not divorce his wife. Basically what he's saying is don't divorce. I grew up believing it was okay to divorce, just not to remarry. That is not true. Divorce itself is wrong. Divorce is putting us under what God joined together. Divorce is violating the vow I took when I got married to stay with my wife for better or for worse until death do us part. I didn't say till death or divorce do us part. So that would make me a liar if I divorced her. And would also be wrong to her, put her in a position where she'd be tempted to remarry and therefore commit adultery, Matthew 5. So he knows from the Lord that it's not right to divorce. Now, there's a little parenthetical phrase here in verse 11. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. He, that, that is confusing people. Because they think by saying, well, if she does leave, means it's really okay to leave. 
That's not what he said. Think about 1 John 2. 1 John 2 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, to say if anyone sins means it's okay to sin? No. It just says what to do if you violate the word and, and do that. So this is not giving permission. It's just indicating the consequences if you do uh, sin and do that. So if you divorce, maybe he's even writing to people who were already divorced. Their options are either to remain unmarried, that is, don't marry somebody else, or go back to the original spouse, if possible. Um, but, but the one thing you can't do is marry somebody else. So divorce is wrong, and remarriage would be adultery. So don't divorce. If you are divorced, either stay divorced or perhaps go back to your bank if that's possible. Obviously, that would depend on them. Thoughts and comments on that section? Yes. You know, we have a growing issue in you know, America with cohabitation. You know, just shacking up together, shall we say. And part of the um, part of the temptation that comes with it is the the idea that you know you don't have to make a big choice. You know, you're just drifting into you know a relationship. But you know, just verses um, verses eight through nine clearly show you know you have a choice to make. You know, you can marry. You know, because love is ultimately you know to love someone is a choice. Or, you know, you can choose to be single, you know. Right, yeah, absolutely. And we are not to choose to act as if we were married when we're not. That is not appropriate. Other thoughts, questions? Okay. 12 to 16. about what that means. Look over for a minute at John 16. And John 16, 12. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. Now what he's saying is that there were other things that he had not yet revealed, they weren't ready to listen yet. You know, we're not always in a position to do that. So those things, he said, that um, you, when the Spirit would come, he would complete the message. He'd reveal the other things that Jesus had not been able to yet reveal to them. 
That's what we're talking about here. Did Jesus say anything specifically about mixed marriage? That is, Christian, non-Christian. Not as far as we know. Evidently, he did not. And so, those mixed marriages are, are something that he doesn't have a specific word from the Lord about. He's just, he's giving the additional message that the Holy Spirit inspired. So he's not saying this is an opinion, or this is uninspired. He's just saying, now this is something that I've got the additional revelation about. I don't have something the Lord has specifically said about that during his ministry. So what is the teaching about this? Well, if the unbeliever is willing to live with you, stay with them. Now clearly, whether that happens or not is going to depend on the unbelieving. You're going to obey what God said, but your unbelieving spouse might decide to leave you. They're not going to feel themselves obligated to keep what the Word says. So, if they're willing, then you stay with them. Religious differences do not constitute grounds for ditching the marriage. The Lord's command against divorce still holds. Now, why might they think that you should not stay in a marriage if it's a Christian marriage or a non-Christian? Well, think about the Old Testament. Think about when a Jew married a pagan. That was wrong. And they ought to separate, Ezra 9 and 10. So I can see why somebody might assume that. Paul is clarifying that. He says that the unbelieving mate is sanctified through the believer and their children are holy. I don't believe sanctified there means saved. Clearly an unbeliever is not saved by their believing mate. But is sanctified. That is, is made appropriate for marriage. You know, a lamb might be consecrated as a sacrifice. Still a lamb. But it's been put to a special use. So I take it that when a believer is married to a non-Christian, that the non-Christian is sanctified in the sense that he is consecrated to be an appropriate marriage partner, and their children are holy, legitimate, whatever. That's what I take that as saying. Certainly he's saying a Christian should continue to be married to a non-Christian. You should not separate because of that. Now there's the other possibility. What if the unbeliever departs? You know, you're going to obey what God says, but they aren't necessarily. So they could decide to leave without your consent. What do you do then? Well, he says, let them leave. They, they can, if they want to leave, that's okay. You can allow that. The law of Christ stops you from divorcing. It doesn't stop you from accepting the divorce the other one does. We're not slaves to maintain the marriage regardless of the consent of the unbeliever, if that would even be possible. So you don't have to feel guilty about that, and that's not wrong. If they leave, okay, let them leave. Uh, you don't have to run after them. Now, that's certainly not saying that you can remarry. He doesn't allow that. He doesn't even talk about that. The word for being under bondage here is not the word for the marriage bond. The word for enslavement. So, you know, but you're not, you certainly don't have to keep the marriage intact if the unbeliever doesn't want it. But in general, 
He is saying you should stay together. You know, as long as the unbeliever is willing, don't leave them. Don't divorce them. He says because God's called us to peace. God does not want us separated. He wants us to be at peace. And he says, furthermore, in verse 16, how do you know? Well, you'll save your mate. I mean, the possibility certainly exists, and there's plenty of examples, where a Christian is married to a non-Christian, and over time the non-Christian has been converted, and then it's not a mixed marriage anymore. You know, if you don't give it a chance, how will you know whether perhaps your non-believing spouse may be converted one day to the Lord? And so he's encouraging us to stay in the marriage if it's a Christian marriage or non-Christian. So that's a specific area that Jesus had not specifically talked about that Paul is giving additional information about. Comments and questions about that? Okay. You're a quiet audience, but that's cool. Yes, Jason? Well, clearly the marriage itself is not something that's sinful. If it was, he would say not to do it. He would say, he would say to leave. You can't stay in some sinful marriage. There might be a number of things we would say to discourage that marriage in most situations. Because it's probably not in most situations a wise thing. But saying it's not wise is not the same as saying it's sinful. So, while I know a lot of brethren who disagree about that, I don't think we ought to make a rule God hasn't made. He's clearly saying here that it's a legitimate marriage. It's not a sinful marriage. And so I don't believe there's some passage that prohibits it. I think there are many good reasons not to do it. Other thoughts? Yes? statement, I'm not sure that's what he's saying. Here, I think he's just saying, you're not a slave to keep the marriage together. If the unbeliever wants to leave, you can let him leave. I'm not sure there's any implication about leave, whether, whether it would cost you to, to leave. You know, have to, have to leave the Lord over to whatever. I don't know about that. He's just saying, you know, this depends on both of you. If they want to leave, then that's their business. You're not a slave somehow to have to make them stay in the marriage. That's what I think. Leaving, depriving them of the responsibility 
to fulfill a topic earlier in the chapter and uh, helping people understand, well, no, you don't have to, that responsibility that you have in that first section no longer applies if they're not willing to, to stay. Right. Correct. Good point. Stacey. What, what would you say about this legal Well, I think, though it's debatable, that this connects with don't leave them. Don't leave them. Don't separate. God has called us to peace. I think that the part, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not undivided in such cases. That's the parenthesis. That's the okay. Yes, if he leaves, okay, you're not divided. But going back to the general point, God has called us to peace. You may even say it. Now, some people would take it as God's called us to peace, therefore you don't have to keep the marriage intact at all costs or whatever. But I would prefer to take that phrase as dealing with the general idea, don't leave in the name of marriage. That's a debatable issue. 16 is even debatable. There are plenty of people who take it as, well, you don't know you'll be able to save them, so go ahead and let them leave. I really struggle with that. I think it is better to take that, certainly, as, well, you might save them. I don't think Paul's laughing at the idea, well, who would think you could save them? I don't think Paul would belittle that possibility. So I think at least 16 is back to the main thought. Stay with them, you might even save them. The question is, is the phrase, God has called us to peace, an argument for staying with them or for letting them leave? I prefer to see it as an argument to stay with them, but that is the way. The reality of the marriage situation where two Christians or one Christian and the other unbelieving, if either one of them chooses to leave, what can you in reality do about it? Nothing. That's right. Of course, if they're two Christians, neither of them will choose to leave if they're following the Lord's will. I'm not saying the other laws of marriage, but you can't stop that person from leaving I agree. But if they're a Christian, that shouldn't be their choice. He's not assuming a Christian would ever choose that. But of course, some Christians don't choose the right thing. Other comments, questions? Okay. Good. Uh, 17-24 is kind of the general principle that this chapter is built on. 17-24. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one that God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And thus I direct in all the churches. Was any man called already circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Let each man remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord free then. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, 
Let each man remain with God in that condition in which he was born. Okay. Here's your principle. That you should stay in the situation that you were in when God called you. The marriage application is a part of a broader concept. And the concept that God's call in Christ more or less transcends divisions based upon social issues, social status. They don't really matter. Christianity is amazing. Christianity can apply to every person's situation. Are you married? Are you single? Are you widowed? Are you a Jew? Are you a Gentile? Are you a slave? Are you free? Whatever your situation, Christianity is so strong and so adaptable, I guess you could say in some ways, that it will apply to you. You can live as a Christian in that situation. A Christian doesn't have to seek some special ideal situation to serve God effectively. You can live out the gospel fully where you are under your circumstances. So a Christian doesn't need to feel like he needs to change his social status. For example, he, uh, he can be a Jew or a Gentile. If you're a Jew, you don't have to uncircumcise yourself. And if you're a Gentile, you don't have to circumcise yourself. Those things don't matter. In fact, he said, circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. A remarkable statement for a Jew to make. Wow. But he's right. You know, that doesn't matter. Those, are, those things are irrelevant. You know, what you were when you were called is what you are. You don't have to change that. Uh, you don't have to change your ethnic status to serve God. You don't have to change your marital status to serve God. Or slave or free man. He's going to talk about that. And say, don't let your social condition concern you. Your calling as a Christian transcends that. Now, I do need to say this. It is possible to misapply that principle. And some people do. It's possible to misapply that. To say you can continue in some sinful condition. There was a uh, one of what's called the early church fathers, lived about 200 A.D., Tertullian. And he, he wrote that manufacturers of idols in his day were claiming this principle to justify their continuing to earn a living by making images. I actually knew a brother in Brazil. That was the family business, was making shrines and images and things like that. Um, and, wow, he wanted to become a Christian. He realized he had to quit trying to sell these things. He had to quit involving himself in the family business to serve the Lord. Because the activity of the business was sinful. That's a different matter. Normally, you don't have to change your job when you become a Christian. But not your job was to make images. Now you do. You can't continue in some sinful behavior. You know, if you're in some kind of a mafia thing or whatever, that's your job, you're surely not going to be able to continue that as a Christian. This is not trying to apply to sinful situations. Repentance calls for every sinful behavior to be stopped. So, some people have said, well, you know, if you were called in an adulterous marriage, then just stay in it. <laughs> 
Well, what would you say about a homosexual marriage? Stay in that one too? Well, that's wrong. Well, now, the same passage that we looked at earlier that condemned homosexuality condemned adultery too. Adultery is simple. It's wrong. It's, you're right. Homosexuality is wrong. But adultery is as well. We can't continue in some kind of sinful behavior. <coughs> we have to repent of our sins. So this is talking about non-sinful situations. When he applies it to slavery, he says, if you call while a slave in verse 21, don't worry about it. Now, if you can become free, go ahead. He's not trying to straightjacket you in to whatever situation you were in when you were called. You know, if you could make an improvement, okay, fine. You know, that's not bad. might be an advantage, actually, to uh, unslave yourself if you could. Uh, But if you're called the Lord while a slave, you're free in the Lord. And if you're called while free, you're Christ's slave. And don't try to become a slave to man. Good point. Don't seek to please men. Don't enslave yourself to trying to do what men want you to. Don't have a slave mentality when it comes to other men. But the bottom line is, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. So, what, what, what situation we're called in? Stay in that situation. That's really the idea of that principle that Paul is really using throughout the chapter. If you're married, stay married in your full marriage situation. If you're a widow or widow, stay, widow or stay in that, or it's okay to get married. If you're married, stay there. If you're married to a non-Christian, stay in that. And uh, if you're engaged, he's going to talk about in the next section, stay in that situation, don't consummate it, but it's okay if you do. And so forth and so on. Comments and questions through 24. Yes. Sure. Yes. Exactly. Circumcision is not circumcision is nothing, but what matters is keeping the commandments of God. That's exactly right. Good point. And shows that circumcision is not one of those that the man has at the moment. Good. Good point. Other thoughts. Okay. Um, twenty-five to twenty-eight. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord. Yet I give my judgment as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. I say that it is good for a man so to be. Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. But, and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. Alright, lots and lots of challenges with this section. Hard to figure out for sure what he's dealing with. He speaks concerning virgins. And he says he has no command of the Lord. He gives an opinion. So, this is like an inspired judgment. It's not an inspired command. Paul has some good ideas here, but it's not something that's a requirement. I think that's the idea. So, it's good in view of the present distress. It's good for a man to remain as he is. 
That is, it would be good not to marry. A virgin would be better off, perhaps in some ways, because of the present distress, some currently difficult circumstance that I don't know exactly what it was, for the time being, he would consider being single advisable in that situation. So he says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released? Do not seek a wife. I think he may indicate, are you engaged? Or are you not engaged? You know, it's better to stay in the situation you're in. Uh, if you're obligated by engagement, okay. You don't have to terminate it, but it'd be better not to get engaged. But, I mean, here's the thing. He keeps saying that. It's not wrong. He's not dealing with something that's sinful here. You know, I mean, there are some practical reasons under the present circumstances. You'd be better off not getting engaged, not getting married. There's less to suffer, less worries. But good advice is not the same as the commands of God. I mean, there are some things that may look very much like, I don't think that's a very good idea. I just think it'd be hard. Well, maybe so. But but that doesn't mean somebody else has to accept that. They don't have to follow. My understanding won't be the wisest thing. I'm talking about something sinful here at all. We're just talking about what would be easiest, what would be best. All things, yeah, good under these circumstances, not to you know, get engaged, not just to, to consummate the engagement or whatever. But it's up to you. It's not sinful. Paul doesn't, he makes it very clear. He's not dealing with Right and wrong. He's dealing with opinion. Thoughts and comments on that little section. Okay. Go. I don't know. Something that was a crisis right then. Something that was difficult. It was going to make it harder for them if they were married. But I don't know what it was. Maybe it doesn't matter. Mike. You say judgment is judgment. Who do we consider divine judgment? God's wisdom. Yes. In the sense that, in the sense that some people will take this chapter and break it down to where it's really nothing that Paul's uninspired opinions in this chapter, and so we are very free to take it or leave most of it because it's uninspired material. I think it's inspired opinion. And so I think we are free to take it or not, but I don't think it's just Paul's hunches. I think the Spirit of God guided him to suggest these ideas, but also to say, it's okay if you don't. It's not sinful. It's just probably not the wisest idea. So I think Paul's giving inspired opinion, inspired wisdom, that the Lord makes clear through Paul, this is not a requirement. This is not a command. It's just a good idea. Other thoughts? We, we are told that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is. And this is part of the Scripture. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's hard for us, a little bit maybe, to think in terms of God giving, like, inspired commands and inspired opinions. You know, or inspired, you know, judgments that are not requirements. That God can give us some, some things that He says... I think this is a good thing, I'd recommend it, but it's not going to be wrong if you don't. Uh, you know, we're expecting God to only give orders. But God can also give us some ideas and some suggestions and tell us. I'm not requiring this, but I do think it would be a good idea for you to consider it. 
It's, it's wiser under the circumstances. And uh, so I think that's really what we've got here. It's kind of an unusual thing. Yeah. Are there any other examples in scriptures of instances like this? That's not, not, not just a command, but an opinion. I don't know. I haven't thought about it. Somebody got Proverbs. Proverbs? Yes, some of that, maybe. What about, maybe like, you know, I'm trying to think of Proverbs that fit that. What about like, don't co-sign a woman in Proverbs? You're not saying it's sinful, co-sign a Just not. <laughs> but you do dumb things. Yeah, so there'd be some things like that. Gary. Given the current distress, though, that was a situation peculiar, evidently, to their location and their time. Is this pretty much totally unapplicable, then, to us today? Well, I would say this part would be applicable when we're in a particularly stressful situation. You know, what that is, I don't know. But if we were in a real crisis period, being married with a family is more challenging. There's just more weighing on us. And so if we saw that this was going to be a really hard time, I think more about situations. I mean, you know, what if I really decided I wanted to um, do a lot of traveling and evangelism to hard and difficult places? I might decide in that situation, there's a, that's a distressing situation. It would be a hard thing to be married in that. Be, be just a difficult thing to expect my wife to go with me on. I can think of something about like that uh, that that would maybe fit that idea. This is cryptic, more cryptic. I started to say cryptic earlier. That's not <laughs> We just need a few more words in the English language. Twenty nine to thirty five. But this I say, brother, I'm assured so that from now, from now even on those who have wanted to be as though they have not, but those who weep as they did not weep, those who rejoice as they did not rejoice, those who buy as they did not possess, and those who use this world and, and have not abused it, the form of this world is passing away, but I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, and how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, and how she may please her husband. The 35. And this I say, for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but, it, but for what is prosper, proper. And then, and then you may serve the Lord without distraction. Now, you know, he says a couple of things. 
The time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none, and so forth and so on. What is he talking about? I think that he's saying that for a Christian, we have a new perspective on time. We see things kind of like a terminally ill patient might see them. If you knew you had six months to live, at least that's what all the competent doctors told you, would you look at life differently? Probably there's somebody in here or more that only has six months to live. We don't know. So we don't necessarily think that way. Well, what if you knew you had six years to live? Would that change how you I mean, I don't know. I think if you knew you had 30 years to live, that might change your outlook. That when you start thinking about it that way, like, whoa, I've got a limited period of time. Well, we don't know when we're going to die. So it makes it feel like it's sort of unlimited because we don't know where the limit is. But really, when we look at it from a biblical perspective, it's terminal. And our view of what's going to happen at the end affects how we live and look at things. So that we don't really identify ourselves very strongly with any world experience. You know, you got a wife, well, it's not for long. You know, if you weep, well, it'll black soon. You know, if you rejoice, well, it won't last. If you buy, well, it's like you didn't. You know, if you use the world, well, it's, it's, you don't make full use of it. I mean, it's like he, things here don't mean very much. They don't last. So I, I, I don't let myself be focused on them, absorbed in them. I don't overinvest in them. You know, a view from a biblical perspective just changes my thinking about life. And nothing there means so much. And so really, it's kind of like doesn't matter much about getting married or not. It's in one sense of the term. Nothing here matters so much. Now, we live so much this world with a this world perspective. I think we struggle with that. I don't think we think about it. being with the Lord and how short life is and the mission we've got. I don't think it has affected us like it should. But I think if you've got the God-centered mentality then you just kind of look at everything here kind of as a short-term, short-time kind of a thing. So I think that's one thing that, that he's saying, you know, just in general, things here are just less permanent and you know you won't last long and they, they just don't affect you as much. But then he also says, I want you to be free from concern. Celibacy is probably not more virtuous, but it might be a little easier. You know, I mean, because it's harder in some ways when you're married because you've got to please your mate. You have got to think about them and do what's going to be best for them. Sometimes it's a conflict of interest. Sometimes it stresses us somewhat. You you need to please the Lord, but you also have a responsibility to please your wife. When you're single, there are ways in which you have more freedom and more flexibility. And your allegiance and your aims can be more purely on the Lord rather than on the things the Lord tells you to do towards your man. Now, this is not saying that you're less spiritual if you get married. But it is saying there are some ways in which it's easier to be single. It's not as much of a conflict. There's not as much stress and pressure in some ways. Paul sees that. 
I think one of the lessons here, two lessons. One is, as we said earlier, we should not look down on single people. It doesn't make sense why you hear things that are almost disparaging. And you're almost like, well, they must be a loser. Couldn't find a mate, I guess. Some of the finest people I know are single people that are well beyond what we would think of as marriage years, 40s, 50s, whatever. They're wonderful Christians. They didn't get married for whatever reason. Some of them may have just chosen that. Some of them, the opportunity may not have arrived. But there are some wonderful blessings in being single. So there's nothing bad about that. We certainly shouldn't think about it as being a second-class thing. I think the other thing is, I think it's appropriate to encourage people to consider that as one option. Sometimes we just almost straightjacket people into, you got in there, what are you going to do? Here's, here's somebody, why don't you take them out? You know, or whatever. As if it's kind of a panic, but you know, you just got we got to find somebody. Well, I mean, there's a lot of people who are going to get married, and that's a good thing. I'm glad I'm married. That was good for me, I think it was best for me, and I'm thankful for that. But, that's not for everyone. And, and there are people who, considering it, reflecting on it over a period of time, will choose, you know, I believe I would prefer to stay single, at least for now. And, and I think that's a very legitimate option. And it has advantages that Paul's talking about here. It's not going to last long even if, you're, even if you're married. In some circumstances, it's really difficult. And in general, it can provide more stress Pleasing our mate and the Lord at the same time. That probably opens up a can of worms, but thoughts and comments and all that. <laughs> My effort in that is trying to just be balanced in reflecting on what he's saying in line with other things we know. Okay. Well, 36 to 38. Will be well. 
So then he who marries is betrothed as well, and he who refrains from marriage will be neither better. Yeah, okay, very good. Um, yeah. New International Version says uh, the man who he is engaged to. Yes. Okay. So the NIV, the ESV, are suggesting this is a man and somebody he's engaged to or betrothed to. The New American Standard is suggesting this is a man and his daughter. That he, he's giving her in marriage or whatever. Now, I prefer the New American Standard in general, but I believe the ESV and NIV are right on this passage. Um, I believe this is talking about an engaged couple. And he's suggesting it's better not to consummate the engagement, but it's fine if they do. Um, that if they have a strong desire to marry, it's perfectly acceptable to proceed with that. But if they can handle it and wouldn't wrong the fiancé, there's some impreferable things, particularly in view of the present distress, I think, in remaining single. So, if you do marry, it's okay, but it might be better if you didn't. Now, the, the argument on this, is it talking about an engaged couple or a father and his daughter, really relates to this last part of verse 38. Does it give her in marriage? The older view of, of this word was that it had to mean the, the father giving her in marriage. That is not currently the thought of Greek scholars. And everything else in the passage, I think, makes it much more likely we're talking about an engaged couple plus. I don't think the Bible gives the father authority to decide the marriage of his daughter. I realize that conflict with some brethren, but I don't believe biblically that's the case. So I believe all the way around the newer translations reflect the current state of understanding of that word. It's got, a, it's got an ending on it that, that previously people thought that it just had to mean to give in, to give in marriage. But currently we don't think that normally. Most of the scholars do not. And I think the newer translations are correct about that. So, in my judgment, he's saying to an engaged couple, they can get married if they choose, but in view of this situation, he would advise them not to. Thoughts and comments about that? Yes, David. I don't know how other people with the New American, how yours is, I guess, typed out. But typically, in mine, words that are kind of implied right. are in a, uh, italicized. Right. And in mine, daughter is italicized so that it would actually read... Uh, but any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin if she is passed, so that could then still lend itself to Correct. And if you look at your New American Standard, at least mine, in the end of 36, let her marry, the margin says literally them. That is the word, it's let them marry. They just can't fit that in with their idea that it's the father and the daughter, so they just change the them to her with no basis in the text. It's let them marry. And so there are many things that I think make it much more likely we're talking about an engaged couple. I feel pretty strongly about that, though I realize I'm not a Greek scholar. So, is there any culture that would lend to be one way or the other for Paul's day? I have no idea. Is this still Paul giving his opinion? I believe so. I think the fact that he keeps saying it's okay if you don't is an indication that this is judgment or opinion, not command. So he's not saying you can't get married. He's saying there's some wisdom in not under these circumstances, but it's okay to do that. 
I would say for us, who doesn't even have an inspired opinion, there are moments that we just don't need to insist that everybody do things our way. I'm not talking about something simple. I'm talking about sometimes we just feel like, you know, this is got to be the way you do it. It's just better. I, 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 I'm sure that it's going to work better this way. Like we got to do it like I say. Now, I, I struggle with that. And I think several of us probably do. That it's, it's just awfully easy to impose our idea. Can't say it's wrong, can't say the Bible says, but I'm just sure that's going to be better. Well, maybe they don't think so. And every once in a while, what I was sure was going to be better didn't turn out there. Believe it or not. So, Isn't that what verse 38 is saying? Because there's two things you're talking about. One's doing well and one's better. Right. Neither one's wrong. Exactly. Exactly. All right, 39 and 40, and we'll complete the chapter. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to marry to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the spirit of God. Very good. So, uh, talking about why a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, her husband's dead, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, she, uh, she has the right to marry, now she can't while her husband's living. Now, that's not a, that, there's not an opinion about that one. That one's set. But if she, if she die, he dies, then she can marry whom she wishes. Only in the Lord. I believe he means only in accordance with the will of the Lord. Only in, so he couldn't, she couldn't marry a divorced person or something like that. Uh, and he says, I think, I, it's my opinion, she's better to remain if she is better not to get married. I think I also have the Spirit of God. Not shooting from the hip here. He believes that the Spirit would agree with that advice. But it's, it's not sinful for her to marry. Uh, so she can marry as long as she marries someone the Lord approves of. Uh, but but it would be better for her, uh, perhaps, uh, to to not marry. So that's that's how he concludes dealing uh, just for a couple of verses with the widow. Thoughts and comments about this? Yes. I got a question about point of clarification, maybe. Sure. When you were saying in verses 12 and 16, married to a non-Christian, and here you're saying now with reference to a widow, being, uh, being able to marry only in the Lord. And if you want to tie that in to 1 Corinthians 9, uh, all being having the right to marry a sister, uh, is your opinion that these passages are saying that one should marry only a Christian? No, I don't think that's the case. In 1 Corinthians 9, he doesn't talk about uh, Peter marrying and marrying a sister. Talking about leading about, he has the right to have a Christian wife supported by the brethren. Um, I don't believe marrying only in the Lord means to marry only a Christian. A lot of people do. A lot of denominational scholars do as well. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think marrying in the Lord is like obeying your parents in the Lord. You do it in accordance with the Lord's will. You don't obey your parents if they're Christians. Uh, and I think First Corinthians seven is uh, teaches us that it's not wrong. For a Christian to be married to a non-Christian. I am not promoting that. I think it isn't a wise move much of the time. Uh, but but I don't believe it's sinful. That's my understanding. Is it the situation though where they're finding themselves? Like say, let's say like 1 Peter 3 again. 
where the wife is a member of the church and she wants to try to win over her husband who's not a member of the church and is disobedient and so therefore for staying together. Can First Corinthians 7 be that as well? In other words, here's a woman who obeys the gospel and therefore her husband's not a Christian and what are they supposed to do? Yeah, I think certainly that may very well be the case. In many cases, it may be one of them's obeyed the gospel. Still in all, it's not a sinful relationship. If it were a sinful relationship, they'd have to separate from it, even if she wasn't a Christian when she married. If she was in an adulterous marriage and she became a Christian, she'd have to separate. If she's been married to a non-Christian, she does not have to because the marriage is not sinful. Yes, David. In 40, or I guess the second half of 40, is he, I guess, qualifying his opinion there? Is that why he's saying, and, and I think I also have the Spirit of God? I think he's saying, I'm not just giving you some you know, wild-eyed opinion I happen to dream of. I believe the Spirit is guiding me in this opinion. So this is a Spirit-inspired opinion. So that's what I think. And again, you don't have to agree with what I'm saying. You know, I'm, I'm even, I suspect, I wouldn't be surprised the majority if you don't agree that it's okay, it's not sinful for a Christian to marry a non-Christian. Uh, but I give you my reasoning. You're welcome to give me yours, and uh, we can let it go at that. But, uh, but that, that's why I believe that it's not sinful. I think if it were, you'd have to say. Yes, John. Doesn't Paul also talk in Second Corinthians six fourteen about being bound together to the non-believer? Yes. And he says you must separate. So he doesn't want that. He said, "Come out from among them and be separate." So if that was talking about marriages, then we have to end those marriages. But he says specifically in 1 Corinthians 7, no. I think in 2 Corinthians 6, though that's, this is more for 2 Corinthians 7, maybe. But I think he's saying don't join together with non-believers in sinful activities. Can you eat dinner with an unbeliever? 1 Corinthians 10 says so. Can you have an unbeliever in your assembly? 1 Corinthians 14 says so. Can you be married to an unbeliever? 1 Corinthians 7 says so. But can you join with an unbeliever in any sinful activity? No. You must separate from that. I think that's what St. Corinthians 6 is saying. Again, I'm probably opposed by the majority here on that. So, Patrick. No. Other. <laughs> Swatting fly, you know. Stop. Uh, I'll bring it to New And some of the translations say uh, she's free to be married whom she wishes, but only a Christian. I don't think that's a correct translation. Certainly, that's not what the words are. The words are only in the Lord. Is that what it means? That's what a lot of people think it means. I don't think so. I mean, we would never say that about obeying your parents in the Lord. Obey your parents if they're Christians. I don't think we think in the Lord there means to obey them if they're Christians. I don't think marrying them in the Lord means marrying them if they're Christians. So I would parallel those two. That would be my reasoning. Um, you're welcome to show me, share your opinion. Yeah, there's not wrong for them to get married. Okay, because I, I guess like my, what I've always heard of consummation being 
No, I'm just saying that it's not. They, they can get married. They can consummate what their their uh, engagement was. Okay. Get married. Yeah. Thank you. Other questions? This is probably just the beginning. <laughs> Wait for the rest of these chapters. <laughs> Chapter seven, I thought, would be semi-controversial. Uh, there's certainly some others, and I think it's helpful to have point counterpoint. Some things I'll be a lot less uh, affirmative on, and just kind of let the discussion go without a lot of comments. Some things I'll tell you what I think. Uh, but I like there being the response back. I think that's helpful, and it gives uh, everybody a chance to think about, okay, there's one point, there's that point, and you can kind of weigh those out. Yeah. So to me, when I try to uh, obey the commands and obey my parents in the Lord, that means that I should obey them insofar as I'm not violating something that the Lord would um, tell me not to do. Exactly. So how would that be applied in a marriage that just don't marry somebody who's against Christianity? Or maybe don't, don't marry someone who's unscripturally divorced. Couldn't we take the approach in verse 39, though, that it would be safer for us as humans, not possibly understanding correctly what that means, to advise that they not marry someone not Christian? For other reasons, I wouldn't advise someone to marry someone. That would be a safer uh, point of advising someone that this might mean. Okay. I mean, you know, when we're studying a passage, I think we're trying to understand what it means. Um, I don't object to someone saying, well, I think there's a possibility this might mean this, therefore I will do something that I know clearly doesn't violate. I think we'd have to be careful not to insist that other people follow my safer course, but I do think it's wise for us, if we think there's some doubt, well, don't do something you think might be wrong, or you you give you know you can see some some point in that side. Then, if at all possible, don't don't break that. I think that's a reasonable thought, and you certainly wouldn't want to advise somebody to do something that you thought might be a violation of the passage. Yes, I think we both agree that it has to be according to the Lord's will. I guess the question is, is what is the Lord's will? I think that's the question that we ever have. And I'm just wondering what the 85,000 in the Old Testament who was put to death because they married someone who was not a child of God would think about that. Well, clearly, that's the, the, the laws have changed. Because in Ezra 9 and 10, they were married to a pagan. They were to put him away. I don't think that's what we're supposed to do today. So it looks to me like that the principle has changed. Other thoughts? All right, very good. Good discussion. Think about those things. Think about both sides.